Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. My day job is as a coach, helping people live better lives. I coach executives and leaders. I coach entrepreneurs and I coach civilians who are looking to improve their lives, their health, their relationships. Basically, it allows me to do what I didn't think was possible, which is to help people completely erase bad habits and different ways of being, erase negative feelings and replace them with positive ones rather than just help people develop new strategies to compete with the old ones or new thought patterns to debate the old thought patterns. And I'm looking for people to work with. And I have reduced my rates a lot so that I can just get as much practice in as I can. So I am going to raise them back up to my normal fees. But right now I just need a lot, a lot of practice and feedback and I have teachers and mentors. So if you're interested in getting my best coaching better than I've ever done at a big discount, email me hj at plantyourself.com. So let's get on with the show. I first began learning about ayahuasca as a potential spiritual, psychological, and physical healer around 2003, 2004. And at that point, nobody else I knew had heard of it. I try to have conversations about the vine of the dead, about um, Mayan shamanism, and there were very few people who had heard of it. Um, I didn't get into uh, other psychedelics uh, as a student until much later. First began talking about uh, psilocybin from mushrooms around 2012. And at that point, there was kind of an underground of people doing it, but you didn't talk about it much. If you were doing it, you didn't talk about it because it was illegal, because there are all these taboos about, you know, LSD making people go crazy and people still having flashbacks from bad trips they did 50 years ago. And my gosh, how much has changed even in the last just three years from the bestseller status of Michael Pollan's book, which was turned into a Netflix series, to the success in changing some laws so that um, some of these entheogens, these psychedelic substances, can be um, used in clinical trials, the interest in uh, helping veterans with PTSD. And we're starting to see this spread now into the mainstream, into mainstream medicine uh, with ketamine, which is apparently fairly legal in, in many places, with these clinical trials, with even in my field around personal development and coaching. There's all these like you know, sort of bro culture has embraced psychedelics. You hear people, you know, podcast hosts talking about it openly. And, and a lot of the, the conversation now has entered a money-making arena where this is going to be business for people and where the promises are for super productivity and clarity and inner peace. And all of this is divorced in many ways from the context in which these substances were first harvested and used by indigenous peoples. And many of the wisdom keepers of these traditions who have been silenced and marginalized for so long have a tremendous amount to teach us about how to work with these medicines respectfully and effectively. That's why I was so eager to talk to today's guest, Rachel Harris, PhD, who is the author of a new book, Swimming in the Sacred, Wisdom from the Psychedelic Underground. 
and she describes her ethnographic research into a bunch of women, most of them quite elderly now, who have been guiding people using ayahuasca, psilocybin, ketamine, other illegal entheogens for decades. And and while the the lore and legend of of modern-day psychedelia has really lionized the men, from Timothy Leary to Gordon Wasson to um, Albert Hoffman, there are many women who've played pivotal roles and whose contributions have been overlooked until now and whose voices have been silenced. And swimming in the sacred brings those voices to life in ways that I think can really help all of us and can help society as a whole. So without further ado, Rachel Harris, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks so much, Howie. So for those of you who are watching either on the blog or on, on YouTube, it's beautiful, that beautiful tree behind you is a real tree. It's not a uh, Zoom background or anything. I, you know, I call it the mother tree. It's so welcoming. Oh, what kind is it? Uh-oh. <laughs> uh. I have no idea. <laughs> okay. Well, you, you, as, as someone who studies um, psychedelics, you, you, you commune with the spirit. You don't, the names are unimportant, right? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a it's a beautiful tree. And thank you so much for, for being here. You're the, you're the author of a, a fairly new book called Swimming in the Sacred, Wisdom from the Psychedelic Underground. Yes. Um, so I guess my, my first question and this, like, normally I would just want, kind of want your bio, but I think I'm going to, um, jumpstart it by, by asking you, you wrote another book about psychedelics, specifically about, um, ayahuasca yes. called listening to ayahuasca. And I'm really curious what you, after writing that book, what you still wanted to say, what you thought your next book was going to be about. Oh, well, I, you know, I, I had no, this was not planned. I had no idea. The listening to ayahuasca book was really um, sort of a calling that I responded to. I felt, um, I felt really connected to the spirit of ayahuasca and that she helped me along the way of writing that book. I mean, it, it, the chapter on neuroscience, which of course, but 50 years ago was not, it was not part of uh, psych, psychological training. There, there was no neuroscience. We had no clue. Mm. And uh -huh. so I said to a friend of mine, you know, I'm one or two people away from the Dalai Lama, but I don't know anyone who knows a neuroscientist. And she says, I do. And he's taken ayahuasca. <laughs> uh -huh. So he was a professor at Berkeley. He vetted that chapter for me. And I felt much better about, you know, much more confident writing about something I had never was not part of my academic training. So that book I felt was real. I had a lot of help. And out of that book, I met some of the underground women and they kind of enlisted me in a way. They sort of, you know, they don't have a voice. They're, they're, they, they're still working underground. They can't stand up at a conference and say, I'm breaking the law. So, mm. you know, we talked and, and it just sort of grew out of the friendships and relationships that I would interview them and write about them. And I didn't have grandmother ayahuasca helping me with this book. It felt very different. I felt like I was out there sort of with the women. Certainly the women helped. But I didn't have the spirit of ayahuasca with me because these women 
use all the medicines. They're not, you know, they're, they're not shamans. They're, they're using all the psychedelic opportunities. And so it was a very different experience writing the book. And I was, they were the only audience I wrote for. I sent them the manuscript before I gave it to my editor. And mm. I felt that um, I, I wanted to honor them and with this book. And uh, so I was only concerned about their feedback. Mm. Now, you, you wrote that um, when you first started, I guess, at some point in the project, that you thought that they were kind of kindred spirits. So you're a clinical like psychologist, you're a therapist. You know, I, I spent my life in the, being the therapist or being the client. You know, I've, uh-huh. I've done both sides of it for what, 40, 50 years and uh, 50, I'm afraid to say. And so I did think they were therapists and that was a big mistake. And I, I was, I was, um, straightened out very quickly that they're not therapists. They're, they're really, we don't really have a role for them in our culture which is part of the problem. We don't really have a, a role for sacred medicines in Western culture, Western, modern Western culture. And I really see them as kind of, and this is sort of a play on words. I see them as high priestesses. <laughs> that's, you know, that what kind of role is that? Um, but that's really how I see them. They're not therapists. They don't, they see people over time. They might see someone once a year for you know, forever, uh, hmm. because the medicines are used in that kind of unfolding way. Maybe they come in twice a year, but if they have something, I want to talk to you about something I experienced. I don't know what it means. Um, can I come in for a couple of sessions? No, they're referred out. And, mm-hmm. and I have to say there are like one or two who are licensed therapists and they work a little differently, but, but most of any kind of ongoing weekly sort of work would be referred out. And they also, I can go on. They also think differently. They're not looking at symptom reduction. They're not looking, they don't want to hear the history of your mother, you know, your relationship with your mother. Um, whereas, you know, that's of course all I want to hear as a therapist. This is, you know, a big part of the job. Um, no, they don't, they're not bothered with that. They're, they're looking for transformation. Oops. Oh. Everything all right? Yeah, I just, but a phone call came in and, and disconnected us. I declined. Okay. It. They're okay. looking for transformation. How is your life transformed? How are you different in your life? And that's a much bigger viewpoint than looking at symptom reduction. And, and mm. in fact, a, a number of them said, if the person is not changing their life, if things are not if their relationship to their own life is not transforming, I don't continue. This is not for the experience. This is for what do you bring back to your community? How you're different? How is your life unfolding? It's a much bigger perspective. Hmm. Well, it reminds me of some of the debates in modern sort of psychotherapy around, you know, there's the the depth psychology movement, which kind of has this mantra of like, it's no, it's no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society, right? We're saying like, we're not, we're not just trying to, you know, like it's great for people who are suffering to, you know, okay, I've got my life on track. I'm, I've launched my, my career. I've, you know, I'm that, but also, but, you know, so I, I hear you, 
the, the, these these women through you saying like we're we're really revolutionaries. We're doing something that if it's going to work is going to kind of shake up the ground under our feet to some extent. Yes, you're right. They're closest to the depth Jungian psych approach to life, and they are closer to that, even though they don't practice it. Um, but often that's the best kind of therapist to go to. Uh, to work with mm -hmm. ceremonies and to work with these medicines. But you do have to realize there's no, in the graduate training programs in psychology that, you know, lead to a psychotherapy practice, there is no training in Jungian analysis. They, he's never mentioned. He's not considered mm. part of the profession of psychology. So it's it's really not a movement exactly. It's a tiny little portion of people who have studied it Jungian Institutes, which is separate from the uh -huh. academic universities. Uh -huh. Can I ask you about your journey? When you, when you know, did you start out as sort of a, a depth hippie and who became a therapist, or did you start out as a sort of a classical clinician no. who no, got your mind never, blown? I never bought into the classical graduate training. Um, I started out on a spiritual search. And so when I graduated from college in 1968, I went directly to Esalen Institute in California, in Big Sur, California, to their um, residential program. So that was, you know, that was the place that I, after a lot of searching and serendipitous connections and a little luck, um, that was the place where there was a meeting of personal growth and psychotherapy and spiritual development. And that's where it was happening. And so I was accepted into their residential program. I was all of 21 years old. I mean, I was not really formed as a person. Uh -huh. And I was clueless is another way of saying that. And so I was in the residential program. There were 11 of us. And we worked on ourselves with all the leading people of the, all the leading therapists and spiritual leaders of the, I mean, we, we spent a week with Suzuki Roshi at Tassajara Zen Center. This was a very mm. unusual opportunity. And, um, and we were together as a group working on ourselves about 50 hours a week. So it was very intense. Mm. Esalen back then in the late sixties was full of drugs, full of psychedelics. Um, but they were not very keen. They had no clue about integration. And I think that's part of why I'm so concerned about it is there I was so young and, and, and vulnerable and doing all this, um, depth work and without any integration. So I remained on the staff doing massage body work for a number of years. And then when I left, you know, I, I still had no way to integrate these years of really intense experience. So it took me a very long time to kind of pull myself together and figure out a way to get a PhD, which I did. And because mm -hmm. I still had this unusual background, I didn't fit into a normal psychology program. So I went into research, which also suited me. I know it sounds antithetical, but it, it, it suited me very well. And I spent 10 years in an academic research office at the University of Miami School of Medicine. What what were your your research interests? Well, we we were um, a department that was we we had the first the director. Well, it, first of all, I want to say this: I was uh, it was an apprenticeship, 
So I didn't write one sentence in that decade that left the office without the director looking at it. And the director was a woman. And that's the whole story is that I had a decade of training and guidance from a woman researcher who um, supported me, supported me to get my PhD. She paid for a statistical consultant from NIH to help me with the statistics. You know, so no, no dissertation committee could question the statistics. I had such high level consultation. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, this is when, when you look at a career, it's who, who mentored you. So this was my academic research mentor, and that was the benefit. And we, she wrote the first psychoneuroimmunological grant that was funded by NIH. She was very forward thinking. So it was, um, there was plenty of room for me in, in that office. I didn't have to squelch mm -hmm. my background in any way. And, uh, and I want to add, when I when I did leave Esalen, I was mentored by a woman who was a second to Ida Rolf, and uh, this was Dorothy Nolte, and she mentored me in the movement education approach to structural integration, and this was her method that Ida had kind of given her movement exercises and said, you know, here you develop this, and she and I developed uh, structural awareness which was a movement education designed to improve posture. So I had, you know, this long-term, you know, really like a familial relationship with someone who was very sophisticated in body work. And then I developed this um, long-term apprenticeship in research. And that's the story of my career, is the, is the apprenticeships, the mentoring. Wow. So... It's this is bringing to me like one of the the sort of fault lines of the book as I'm reading it is around uh, gender issues, right? So you you mentioned a couple of women whom I had never heard of. I'd heard of their husbands, right? K exactly. Ken, Kendra Houston and um, I'm, I'm I'm blanking on the Smith, woman Gordon Wass. Houston Gordon, Smith. Houston Smith. Yeah. Right, and um, Gordon Wasso's wife, like like there yeah. is like. There are people who are underground. And they weren't and, you know, underground. They were just yeah. neglected. They were passed over. Yes, it's an old, old story. So, you, you know, what I say is the women I interviewed, these women elders who've been working underground for all these years, they're silent because they're doing illegal work. But they're also silenced because they're women. And now there's another level of discrimination because they're, they're elders. I mean, it is sort of respected within the psychedelic community, but not in the culture in general. And, you know, I just presented uh -huh. at MAPS. I'll tell you this little story. I just presented okay. at MAPS. And, and say what MAPS is for people oh, who don't know. Oh, um, sorry. Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Science. That's, okay, great. If you go to maps.org, you get the whole thing. Uh -huh. um, but it's it, this is the nonprofit organization that has put MDMA through the FDA um, for in terms of research for it to become legal under prescription, but still legal. So this is a very important organization for the psychedelic world. And this was their biggest conference. There were about 12 or 14,000 people there. And uh -huh. I presented and one of the women I interviewed, you know, who's now, of course, a friend. She's in the audience. 
And she tells me afterwards, someone in the audience was, she was talking to people sitting around her and they said, you know, I, I'm on the stage and they said, well, she, she looks like a grandmother. <laughs> and then she <laughs> starts talking and you realize, oh my goodness. <laughs> so women are discriminated against, of course, in terms of age. And we, we have a higher bar to kind of prove ourselves to have a voice. And there was, um, you know, I, I also did something else that was awful at this uh, conference. I'll, uh, here's another confession. I don't know. I'm being so honest with you, but there, I mentioned this in the book that there was a, a, a collection of chapters published in honor of Stan Groff published in 2022. So very recent. And out of 20 authors, there were three women. One was long dead. I mean, years ago dead. Another was the second author. And the third woman had her own chapter. So here's the confession part. The editor of that book, his daughter was at the conference. So I said to her, I trashed your father's book. <laughs> and I explained to her why I did it. And she, you know, she's a female also, you know, making her way. It's not so easy. She's in her 30s. And she said, my father tried really hard to get female authors, and he just couldn't find them. And, you know, I've heard that excuse before, so I don't buy it. But um, she she understood that this was an issue, at least. And I said, well, tell your dad <laughs> that this does not look good. So... You know, it's very current. This is still a problem for women to have a voice. And, you know, some of my training in academia and as a researcher, I kind of learned how to have a voice. I, I, I wouldn't have learned it just being in private practice. So, you know, there's a, there's a kind of, there's a, a, it was part of the mentorship. I mean, when I was just in this research office for a few months, the director sent me to deliver a paper at a big conference. And, and I said, I don't really understand this paper. I don't really, oh, you don't have to understand it. Just read it so, <laughs> right in front of, you know, hundreds of people. So I, this is part of mentor. That, 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 that feels like how men think all the time. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. She was, she was wonderful. <laughs> Just, just say it loud. No one's going to question you. Right. It's true. There's truth to that. So, you know, I was, this was part of what I learned in 10 years in that office. Mm. So, and that's one of the reasons I really wanted when, when uh, Kim Corbin reached out to me about, um, you know, interviewing you for, for, for this book, I've, I've gotten very picky. I say no to way more than I say yes to now, just because my, um, my filter now is, do I, do I really want to have this conversation? Like, am I excited to have this conversation? Yeah. And I, I, I've done ayahuasca once. I've done a couple of other things. Um, it wasn't a terrific guided <laughs> experience, but I got uh, some, you know, you know, mother Aya had, had plans for me that, uh, that I think were appropriate, even though it was, it was kind of a mess, but like, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm seeing what I'm seeing sort of uh, I'm being professionally sort of on the cusp of, you know, coaching and personal development is that I've seen psychedelics adopted by bro culture, like Silicon Valley, live yes. forever, um, the singularity, 
it's and it's it's gross, honestly. And like to 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 see your to read your book and to see that there's a counterweight that has sanity in it that has not been like the question is like if if psychedelics meet capitalism, who wins? Oh, right. Man. And and there's people who are like, well, psychedelics will change us. And so we'll so I don't think so. I think capitalism no. is stronger. I want yeah, right. We thought that in the late sixties, psychedelics will change the world. Well, mm. how you know, how's that worked? <laughs> Right. Well, so, you mentioned like, like if, if it had, the, the baby boomers wouldn't have grown up and become yeah, I'm not, know, exploiters. I'm not, that, I'm not that proud of my generation. Right. Right. I, I don't know what to say about that. I really appreciate your raising it because yes, I, I, I have a very different perspective. Um, but I'm not up to being a counterweight to Silicon Valley bros. <laughs> That's a big job. Uh, and right. um, but but the book is the the book is saying even even um, you know the Johns Hopkins researchers who are do who are trying to objectify everything who are doing yeah. clinical research who are saying this is a substance like every other substance look how helpful it is in MDMA can be in trauma because it quiets the amygdala like people with good hearts people who yeah. think the way yeah. I have been brought up to think and these these women are saying. You know, I'm reading them as saying, you're missing the important part here. Thank you. Oh, I'm so thrilled that came through in the book. Yes, they have a different perspective. And we dare not lose that perspective. I mean, this is really a challenge to the culture. And, um, you know, here's just an example of. Um, let me get my notes because it's. Uh, oh, you think I have that note handy? No. Ah, here it is. <laughs> Albert Hoffman. He's the, the chemist who developed LSD 25. And he lived a very long life. He died when he was 102. So at age 97, he took his final LSD trip. Hmm. So this is a, this is living with the entheogens for a lifetime. This is a whole different way of seeing these medicines than a, a cost effective intervention that's being researched for symptom reduction. So there's this unfolding over a lifetime that a journey, a psychedelic journey is different at age 97 than it is, you know, a half a century earlier. Cause Hoffman, you know, covered a, a lot of territory in he, a, a whole century. And the women have this way of they're working themselves with the medicines. They, I mean, the start of their work was on themselves. And they felt this has this, these medicines have been so helpful for, for me. I have to work with others. So that, that was years of their own work and then working with others. And then over a lifetime, I mean, when I was sitting with the eldest of the elders, who's now like 90, this was a couple of years ago. So she was only maybe 88, 87. She said, well, I haven't done ketamine in a long time. I, I should do that again. And I'm mm. thinking, I'd be just happy to be vertical at 87 years old. So the medicines, they know this territory. They've really explored all the medicines at all the dosages. And, um, you know, the current psychedelic therapists don't have time to spend years developing their, their depth experience. 
And the psychedelic research teams are focused in a very different way. And sometimes they miss the boat. So I can give you an example of that. Yes, please. Um, so Hopkins published a couple of papers basically around, did you encounter an entity? And this was this uh, survey was done over the Internet. So they had over a thousand subjects and they could divide them by the medicine that they took. So they looked at, did you encounter an entity under LSD, under um, psilocybin, you know, under all the different categories. So it's very interesting research. But they missed the question that I asked because when I did, I did a, a research study looking at ayahuasca use in North America that was published in 2012. And when I developed the questionnaire to do this study, I asked one of the women I later interviewed, because I had known her, I said, what should I ask in this research? And she just, she's not a researcher, but she knew clinically and spiritually, ask, do you have an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca? Hmm. I said, sure, I'll ask that. Well, I had a, a, an N, 81 subjects. That's a lot for this kind of a study. Three quarters of them had an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca. So three quarters, like 56 of these people were able to communicate in an ongoing way in and outside of ceremony with an unseen spirit, an unseen mm -hmm. other a plant teacher. This is outside the Western culture, what these people grew up with. They were all Westerners. They were North Americans. This is an incredible finding, but Hopkins did not ask that, do you have an ongoing relationship? So they don't know. They only asked, did you encounter under the influence a one-shot experience? They don't mm. know about the ongoing relationship. And I felt that these women have ongoing relationships with the plant spirits, with this spirit of the medicines that they serve. This is a very different cosmology than the researchers. Well, and just, and just that grammatical twist at the end, the medicines they serve, sounds very different from the Western model of these are the medicines that serve me or serve my patients. Yes. Yes. Somebody put it this way that I thought was the perfect way to put it. This is a, this is a friend of mine who's a Jungian analyst trained in Zurich, which is, you know, six or seven years mm -hmm. after the academic work here. And now he's, he's been working six years with a Shapipo shaman. So you, mm -hmm. you get a sense of these, you know, this, this kind of study takes a long time. And he was deciding something about a paper he was going to present. And the question was not, what should I say? What do the plants want me to say? Hmm. You get a whole, it's a whole, it's a sh complete shift in, in the sense of, of our purpose and the way things work in the world. It's a whole different way of thinking. Mm -hmm. So a while back, I interviewed uh, Jeremy Narby who had just oh, well. written a book, uh, <laughs> Plant Teachers. Um, That's a great book. And I have to admit, like, I'm, I'm, I don't understand. Like, I don't have the, the background or the context to really understand, except in sort of a fairy tale kind of way, like what the spirit of a plant 
is one of the things that, that I really loved about swimming in the sacred and also struggled with was that you were telling a first person story about the gaps between your understanding or your, your character makeup and these women who were shamans that there were, or, or, you know, the IOS, the high priestesses, there were, there were way, places they were going that you yeah. felt you didn't or couldn't. Exactly. And so I, I, yeah. I kind of, I was kind of seeing myself uh, like you were in some ways a proxy for me. Could, could you first like talk about like just writing that way and what the goal was? Well, I didn't really have a goal. I was really just sharing my own process and, and, I mean, if you, if you look at the ayahuasca book, it's just really hard for me to understand this other reality that the plants that, 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 that ayahuasca opens. And now I'm interviewing these women and I'm realizing they live in two, two worlds and I, they have very unusual experiences, even as children, um, in other realms that I don't, I don't go to. And so, I still suffer with, is that real? Is that not real? So this mm -hmm. is, you know, I'm a Westerner. I, you know, I spend years in academia. Um, it's very difficult for me, but I would say part of the, um, part of that interviewing these women, spending time with them changed me in a way that I'm far more open to these other realms than I have ever been. And it's a little scary because I can feel sort of my Western materialistic viewpoint just disintegrating and, and you know, disappearing, just falling away. And um, it's a shift for yeah. me. That's the best way I can put it. Yeah, I've struggled with this a lot for the past three years, especially since sort of COVID, because there was something about relying on Western rationalist, scientific method, uh, materialist approaches that kind of protected me from going from like crazy stuff. Yeah. Right. Like, and it seems like maybe like the really bad stuff and the really good stuff are both outside of the, the the Western materialistic, you know, dis, dis, uh, disprovable disprovability paradigm. Right. It's 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 clear. It's very limiting. So this is um, you know, and I'm not talking about ceremonies. I'm talking about just being with these women. Um, uh -huh. has has uh -huh. shifted me a bit. Um, I'm just looking at the end of the book. There were a couple of times you quoted, and I didn't, I didn't take notes on. Oh, here. Like, um, so what's the purpose of all these entheogenic journeys, if not to expand the heart and open with love for the world? And to me, that was like the explanation, like that's the guidepost. Like if you're going to go off of the Western way, yeah. And yeah. like it, it bet that had better be your guide. Other, otherwise, yeah. you're going to go down some nasty rabbit holes. Yeah. Other, other, yeah. <clears throat> to think in terms of that, not just our responsibility or our intention for the world, but love for the world. And there's, 
there's a Tibetan monk who, who's, who says, you know, when you love the world, the world loves you back. This is a whole different reality. Um, and so I think we have to think in these bigger, um, a more universal kind of way and the way that we use these medicines, that they open us up to these bigger worlds. Um, here's, here's what one of the women says. I love this because this challenges the, the direction that the, that the research has gone in terms of saying the mystical experience is the critical thing. So here's this woman, elder. You get a mystical experience, but so what? <laughs> sort of, it just cuts that right off. You have to learn how to work with energy. If you don't shift your awareness, you'll never know how energy works. And the concept of energy in that, in that message is very big. It's, it, that's the, it's the, it's the energy that, that is in different worlds and different realities. That's very big. Mm. So that's a mm. very different perspective. Yeah. See, when, when that translates in most cases, I think, to our Western culture, it comes out as sort of law of attraction, right? Like if you love the world, the lo no. world loves you back. If you no, know, it's not that it's much bigger. It's about um, it's about how you relate to your life. So here, here's another quote, different woman. I watch for a shift and how the person embraces being alive. It's a much, mm. it's a much bigger. It's what do we do with this one precious life? Mm. That's the question. And he, here's, an, this is again, a different woman, how to live on this earth and be joyful. I mean, this is, this is, if, if you, if this is the Dalai Lama's religion, how to live on this earth and be joyful. Mm. There's a wonderful book that um, documents a week that the Dalai Lama spent with um, uh, Bishop uh, Desmond Tutu from South Africa. Uh -huh. And it's about joy, no matter what, uh -huh. which is, you know, not so easy. Yeah, no, um, I have, I have, I have, um, you know, I negotiate with joy, right? <laughs> Right. I'm, I'm like, okay, you know, even here, you know, having, having moved to Spain, um, there, you know, there's a big, there's a big part of me that's like, okay, like I have to figure all this out. I'm untethered. Um, yeah. I, okay. In the back of my head, I have all this spiritual stuff that I've heard over the years and sometimes believe more than others, but, but, it, but it comes to me in terms, in very transactional terms, like, okay, I'll believe in universal love. Once you show me some. Oh, yeah. Well, how's that working? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but it's, you know, it's, it's, de it's demanding something of me um, as opposed to me demanding something of it. Um. You know, I, here's, here's my um, question for you that I said, you know, I, I, I do have a question for you. Because I read, I read your description of your life, you know, yourself, and you had a, um, a transformative turning point in your life in terms of health. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. So mm -hmm. how do you understand that? What? Uh, what? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had, I've had a few. Some, some of them have been more, you know, I would say, biological and more, others have been more psychological and others have been more 
spiritual. Um, you know, I don't think I, I haven't written about the most recent ones. Um, um, I mean, part, you know, partly I have understood it as like willpower will bully for me. Look, I, uh, you know, I resisted temptation. I, uh, I sacrificed and now I'm healthy. And, you know, it's a way, it's a way of explaining life in a way that makes me feel safe, right? Like, you know, I don't have a, a Job story of tragedy just landing on me for no reason and having to, uh, you know, I, I, I can take some credit for it. The more, the more recent, um, forays into well-being for me have been embracing my ordinariness and, and realizing how deeply comparative and competitive I have been, um, in, you know, in wanting to be special and wanting to be famous and wanting to be more than and, and realizing that that wasn't, it wasn't motivating me to do anything wonderful. If it had been motivating me, it was motivating me to, uh, to actually circumvent the spirit of, of the healing that I want to bring to the world. Um, and I, you know, and that feels like I'm not, I don't, I'm not taking, it doesn't make any sense to take any credit for this. This is, this feels more like a grace. And it, and it did happen after the ayahuasca experience that I told you about. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Which like, huh. <laughs> Uh-huh. So this is a wonderful mm. example of uh, the process of transformation unfolding in your life. And the entheogens are famous for facilitating that process. And ayahuasca particularly is very good at mm -hmm. shaping people up. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, one of my favorite quotes is this young guy, 20-something, said, well, I did a ceremony and yeah, she talked to me. She told me to clean my room and cut my hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so she's, you know, she's from the shape up kind of uh, discipline. So, um, you know, when you're doing the work that you're doing and you, t and you talked about the Silicon Valley bros, you know, ha as, as we work with these medicines and they open up worlds and different ways of being, the biggest risk is inflation. And and mm. what moderates that? Can you say, say more about what inflation looks like and why it's a risk? Well, you described it in yourself. I want to be famous. I want to, you know, the kind of ambitions that are all about me <laughs> um, mm. and, and, how, and how I've done this. And even your description of your first um, getting healthy. I did this. I did this by brute force and will and, and, and I earned this. That's, you know, as if you're in charge of your life, let me point out. <laughs> um, and, and I understand the hard work that you did and that's certainly to be commended. And it's not the same as I've created this health. You don't create health mm -hmm. or you don't even create well being. So, um, the the indigenous moderator of that is not as vague as love for the world, although, you know, who, that's wonderful, but it's humility. Mm. 
And in the process of training to become a shaman, if the person goes off track to become a sorcerer, where they use the medicine or the powers that they've accrued in destructive ways, it's because they, they did not develop the humility and the, and the perspective of I'm a student here. I'm learning. And it's about the plants coming through me and teaching me. Mm. So what comes to mind? Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go. Well, what comes to mind around humility is also a very practical issue of how do you avoid abuse when you have power differentials with the you know the the guide the, the psychedelic guide. You know there have been there there are mutterings of of sexual impropriety in there's more in than the, muttering. Yeah. Yeah. Well. All right. <laughs> Yeah. Right. And, you know, there are there are stories of, you know, people, you know, like that oh, with the with the with the rationale, well, times were different then or or whatever. But there's like the kind of humility that is called for here is much more than a steering committee of, of an organization protecting itself. There's there's like, you know, serious calling of bullshit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is probably going to be a growing problem. Um, and and if someone is not licensed as a therapist, then there's no consequence. It's only if they're licensed that um, there's a consequence. And then if the if the abuse happened during an underground ceremony, then the person has to report they engaged in illegal behavior to begin with. So it gets very mm. difficult to, and who do you report to? The police that you engaged mm -hmm. in illegal. It's very difficult to deal with. If someone is a licensed therapist, you can report to their board. And that's the thing to do. There are attempts to begin to develop organizations to deal with this, but they're at the very beginning stages of developing. Um, mm -hmm. so humility is, I mean, yes, that's one aspect of inflation and, and it reflects uh, a it reflects a real problem in in the person abusing the other person here's here's one indigenous story one of the women i interviewed trained with a very powerful shaman in peru and when she realized um that he was abusing western women she confronted him directly she's very strong and fearless. I mean, that's the one quality these women all had. She's fearless. This is a, this is still regarded as one of the most powerful senior shaman. She confronted him and he said, this was his response that she told me. He said, but it's so easy. Hmm. So there you get the real confrontation with his own pathology where there's no empathy for the damage this done this does to the person. And, you know, the woman I interviewed, she's a dear friend of mine. She left him. She left the shaman. She was, she stopped training with him and she went elsewhere. So this takes a lot of courage and, and her own ethical morals to break off that relationship. But there you're confronted with the real pathology, but it was so easy. And mm. so we've seen a lot of this total lack of empathy in our culture recently that it's kind of rampant and the more inflated the person is 
the less likely they're to have empathy for the other person. So humility mm. is really about, we are both learning and struggling. We are both, we're the same. So that's very, so I would no longer harm you as harm myself. It's very different. It's a real mm. spiritual humility. Yeah. And not, not just so, I'm afraid of the consequences of getting caught. Yeah, yeah. So can, can you introduce us to, to some of these women? Maybe um, just to, you know, through storytelling to uh, Yes, because of course I can't them? reveal any identities, that's for sure. Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a real personal story. This is the woman who said, you have a mystical experience, so what? It's how you work with energy. This is the mm -hmm. woman that, you know, of course, a lot of them were in the California, San Francisco Bay area, but not all of them. Some were in the, the greater northwest, some were in New England. But this one woman was in Maryland. And I would say to the California women, oh, you think you know everyone I interviewed. Do you know anyone in Maryland? And they would say, Maryland? Where's Maryland? <laughs> so <laughs> there are people doing this work everywhere. So she's happens. Um, so I got to her through a dear friend of mine who is an artist and the artist passed away a couple of years ago. So I was in Maryland visiting the widow, widower, the husband. And um, this woman came over to take me out to lunch, the woman I had interviewed. And she's worked with a number of different shaman and she's been working for many years. And and the husband said, I have two big closets. I mean, huge, you know, huge closets of his wife's clothing. And I don't know what to do with it. I mean, he was really at a loss. And I didn't know my dear friend was such a clothes horse. These were just an enormous amount of beautiful clothes, um, all dry cleaned and, you know, t well taken care of. So my friend, the, the woman comes over and... um She's the same size as my friend who died. So we spend a couple of hours going through all the clothes. And in the process, we thank my dear friend who died. Karen is her name, the artist. We thank her. We celebrate her. I mean, when you talk about working with energy, it was, it was such a wonderful experience. The husband was so grateful for the clothes to go to his wife's dear friend. Mm. I was so grateful that she got these beautiful clothes. She was grateful because she was cleaning out her closet just happenstance. So you get a sense of all these different energies involved in this couple of hours of trying on clothes and going through a closet. And the husband carried out these piles of clothes for her to put in her car. I mean, really, he made two trips and he's a big guy. It was really a lot of clothes. And then she and I went out to lunch and I, I talked to her and I said, this is what you mean by working with energy. This was a wonderful experience. And I got healed in the process because my friend was a couple of years younger than I and she died of a, a, a cerebral hemorrhage. So it was very fast and totally unexpected. She wasn't sick at all. So it was a shock. Mm. And I was having a hard time getting over the loss. 
and going through her clothes and celebrating her and the gift that would go on in the world was such a healing for me that I've I've really been healed of the mor- the morning that I was going through. It really shifted me to um, mm-hmm. say, yes, of course I miss her and, and it's okay. So this, this is working, what working with energy means in a very real concrete way. It's not just in ceremonies, it's in life. And, and part of what we're talking about is we're sharing things from our own lives is this sense of unfolding that it doesn't all happen in one mystical experience. And now I'm no longer depressed <laughs> that there's a lifelong unfolding and learning and uh, working with ourselves. And you're, you're talking about your own process and then saying, well, gee whiz, that was right after the ayahuasca ceremony is kind of putting it together in a different way that there's, that the medicines uh, facilitate this natural process of our growing and learning. And, and I generally end every um, presentation uh, with a slide that says, I'm going to ruin this now, but it's about discernment. How do we discern the difference between what's serving my ego and what's serving the world? And, um, and, and the discernment is what brings more love into the world, what adds to the love in the world, not just to mm. my own benefit of fame or fortune or power, mm. but what creates more love in the world. And, oh. and this passing on of the clothes was an, an explosion of love in the world. It was wonderful. <laughs> mm. And I think one, one of the things that I'm beginning to trust the psychedelics for is to to make sure that my perspective isn't just a, hu- a human one that I'm not just trying to maximize human happiness although you know like there's nothing wrong with that and it's a good thing to do but it's it's like you know like when you think about how human society has evolved in such close c- connection and conversation with nature and you know here I am now uh, on a busy street where, where, you know, if I want to see like a tree in nature, I have to, I have to go many, yeah. many miles, right? There's little trees planted here, you know, between the, the, the cobbles. Um, but that, you know, th- that there's something trustworthy about the fact that these plant teachers aren't human. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we don't, I, I mean, as a Westerner, I can't say I understand that other world. It's still a mystery to me. And I can't believe I even talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there is this sense of being guided in an ongoing way. And that's, that, that's implicit in that statement. What do the medicines want? Which is very different from how can I maximize my own benefit? And I, I think it is, I mean, you talked about counterweight. I think that is the counterweight that we could all, you know, in that Buddhist sense of cultivate that quality of humility. Mm. Um, I think it helps balance some of the um, opening that the plants offer us, that the entheogens offer us to come in contact with that God within is very seductive. 
and yeah. and and even in the the whole arena <clears throat> of the of the professional research to say I'm a student of these medicines that I'm learning how to work with them I'm learning from them that 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 that's a more humble position than uh um I'm researching to get the maximum cost-effective benefit. Right. Or I'm researching to get my doctorate, to get a tenured position. <laughs> right. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Uh, so so f- um, if I were to be able to find one of these women, these high priestesses, and work with her, what what might the experience be like just you know it's obviously it's going to be different for for every person like right. you know there's no cookie cutter model but just for people who are completely like they they've made it this far in the conversation and and like they're intrigued but they're like what exactly the hell are they talking about okay. how how concrete how concrete can you get in saying like what would it be like to work with one of these women so the 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 part of the preparation is the very detailed medical history and uh getting to uh what whatever medications you're still on because there are some contraindications and the women who have been working underground have medical doctors they can consult with in other words they have colleagues they're not working alone and mm. so you don't want to enter into any journey or ceremony where you have not been screened medically this is really important and uh and i you know, at this MAPS conference, I, I was signing books and this young woman came and I signed a book for her. And she said, I'm an underground guide. She must have been 25 years old. And I said, and how do you, how do you do the medical screening? And she said, what medical screening? <laughs> I said, well, there's certain contraindications where some medications are dangerous combined with the entheogens. And she paused and she said, well, maybe I should stop working. <laughs> I said, yes. Mm. <laughs> so don't go to anyone who doesn't do a, a full medical screening. And the women, because they're so experienced, they know that people lie about their medications. I'm not going to tell you I'm on um, Prozac because I know if I tell you that, you won't do a ceremony with me. So mm. people lie about their medications. So it has to be an in-depth conversation. Then, you know, um, for there there's one woman who does a traditional ayahuasca ceremony because she's the one who trained with the Shabipo shaman. But most of the others are working in a more Western way. They've been trained in, in Stan Groff's holotropic breath work, or they uh, worked with Ralph Metzner. They've been trained in other ways, or they have other kinds of shamanic training. And so they use the protocol that is used in the research studies where, um, you you lie down and you have eye shades and and earphones and you're listening to music and it's generally one on one although some of the women work in small groups and um generally the woman is is fairly the guide is fairly quiet but some of them are more interactive often the first medicine that's used is MDMA because it's generally such a a positive experience um, so that's, that's, and this can go on for five to seven hours, depending on the medicine and the dosage. And, and I did, you know, early on in my 
interviewing these women, I realized my psychedelic experience had been in the 60s when we were out in nature in Big Sur. It was wonderful. But I never mm. did this protocol with the music and, and the eye shades that are, it's all designed to turn you inward. And that's what most of the women are using. And certainly all the research studies are using this inward um, protocol. And so I arranged for an MDMA session with one of the women. And the last hour of that journey, she did clearing work on me that had grown out of her Native American training. So she used different herbs and smells and scents and, and, and sounds and, and really did a, an energetic clearing of me that I'd never experienced before. It's at such a level. And it felt like, well, everything I'd gone through in that ceremony was just sort of lifted out of my system. Not, and it was, it was just, it was wonderful. It was, it was just lovely. I mean, I felt loved and cared for and, and that, that she lightened my energy field. It was wonderful. So these kinds of things can happen during a ceremony. And then there's a debriefing. You know, you, you, you don't go and drive after a ceremony. Often you spend the night or someone picks you up. And then there's usually a debriefing meeting that you kind of share what your experience was. And, and because these women are so experienced with different journey stories and the medicines, they kind of know where you go. They can travel with you, um, that they can kind of talk to you about your experience. And that's, that's a very difficult thing to explain how they can enter into their, that shared space. And the closest I can come to it is to say, check out a book by Raymond Moody, who developed near death, near death, NDE, near death experience. He wrote a book on shared death experience because so many people came up to him at lectures he gave and said, you know, my, my beloved relative or spouse died. And I went with them part of the way as they were dying. So there's a book about this. And that's sort of what these women are able to do. They're able to travel with you. They know the territory so well. And one of the rules is you don't serve a medicine that you don't know, that you haven't experienced. And in fact, I spent an afternoon with one of the women in her little, she has an office, a separate building in her garden. So it was really lovely. And I was leaving. It was coming on sunset. We had spent the whole afternoon. This is someone I already knew well. And she said, well, I'm going to drink this new batch of ayahuasca that I just brewed. And I said, really? She said, yes, it's a new, it's a new batch. And I need to know this medicine before I serve it. And I'm serving it tomorrow night. So I have to drink it tonight. And so mm. there's that kind of inner ethical standard of, I will not serve a medicine I don't know. Even though she knows ayahuasca generally, she didn't know this batch of medicine. Mm. So, and so you yeah. get a sense of the care that goes into these journeys. Yeah. So I'm thinking about myself and my family and also my listeners, who, some of whom are be like, well, how do I find these women? And how do yeah, I protect myself? Yeah, email me and ask me that. <laughs> yeah. But and how do I, but how do I protect myself from people who aren't? And I guess that's the first question. The second question is like, what what can be done to 
you know, it, it could create standards or to, to protect people because I've, you know, I've seen people take weekend workshops and then come out and say, well, I can now serve. And as long as, yeah. you know, 10% of my money goes to the so-and-so tribe, I'm honoring them. No. Like it's, 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 it's a wild west. It's either become medicalized or it's become heroic. Like how, how do, how do people who are like you or like me, who are interested and I can't, you know, I'm not going to email you and say, Hey, tell me their names, but how, how do we find guides who are skilled and ethical? Uh, to and guide underground. Us? <laughs> yeah. That given, given that we can't find them with a Google search. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I do, I do say just don't go to anyone who doesn't do a medical interview. Um, always ask how many, if it's a group, how many people are going to be in the group? How many helpers? You just want to know, are there going to be 50 people there with three helpers? Hmm. Um, you want to know, you have every right to ask, how long have you been doing this work? Who trained you? One of the women said, always ask, who authorized you to serve this medicine? And hmm. I don't think I included that in the book because I thought it was almost too aggressive a question. But after hearing how everybody's serving the medicine, it's not a bad question. Who authorized you to serve this medicine? Mm. Um, and and I, I compare it to so someone says, "Well, I want I'm looking for a therapist. I want to I want to do psychotherapy." But there's a whole array of different approaches to psychotherapy. Lots of different people from coaches to PhDs, to analysts, and some of them are harmful, some of them are just stupid, some of them are brilliant. <laughs> and and then there has to be a match, you know, between the therapist and the client. And I think it's the same thing with working with a guide. You want a match. I, You know, I had a, a, a woman I knew who said she was self-trained by the mushrooms, and she'd been working with psilocybin and and her beloved mushrooms for a decade now that was not enough to get her into the cohort of the the people i interviewed i had a criteria set of 20 years working so she didn't qualify for that but i interviewed her as sort of an auxiliary perspective and i had referred a friend or two to her and then mm. they come back and they start telling me well after the ceremony she started talking about a lot of conspiracy theories and she was very anti-Semitic. And I'm thinking, oh, oh, my God, I have to call my friends and apologize. <laughs> so, you know, it's who the person is. Just like when you find a therapist, it's who they are. And that's going to be true of these women. Who are they are inside themselves? And just uh -huh. as you have a right to ask a therapist, how long have you been working? Have you had therapy yourself? It's a good question to ask a therapist because they haven't all had therapy. It's not part of a doctoral really? program. That's what the women said. How can they do therapy without having had their own therapy? Well, <laughs> they didn't huh. know. It's not a uh -huh. requirement. Now, it is for an analyst, but not, yeah. for a, not for a psychologist or a social worker or a counselor. It's not always required. It's usually not. 
So these are the kinds of questions to ask. And if the person who's doing the ceremony gets defensive, then you know not to go to them. Hmm. And, and I say, you know, go to your your local psychedelic society and meet people and find people, you know, begin to connect that way. But I'm quite serious. I'm not a referral service, so don't email me <laughs> for a yeah, referral. I won't, I, won't, I won't include your email. <laughs> No, my email is through the websites. It's very easy to find um, me. <laughs> okay. I'm sworn to secrecy with these women. And that is what right. I tell people. Go to your local psychedelic society and begin talking to people. Hmm. And if someone's doing a shamanic ayahuasca ceremony, who's singing? What kind of, what kind of Icaros? How are they using music in the ceremony? Because a traditional Ayahuasca ceremony is really all about the Icaros that are sung. I mean, the medicine comes through the Icaros. It's not, yes, you drink it, but the healing comes through the energy of the singing. Mm. And when mm. someone studies with a shaman for six or seven years, it's because they're learning how to channel that energy through the Icaros. Mm -hmm. So I know we're coming up to the end, the end of our time, um, but there's, to me, there's a problem with asking people to be discerning, to be able to say, to ask these bold questions like who authorized you or have you. It's a bold question. Right. Because like one of the core wounds that a lot of people have in our society, especially women, is and you described this in one of your first sessions at, at Esalen about sort of a feminine wound in which you kind of just took something without yeah. standing up for yourself. Like, should people, should people be basically ego healed before doing um, these, no. these, these no. journeys? When, when, who, who can say I'm, my ego is healed? Who can say that? <laughs> no, the medicines are for healing. So, and you know, and, and another thing is the indigenous women are never alone with a shaman. See, they know. Mm. Um, they always have a relative or someone with them. So they're never mm. alone with a shaman. Uh-huh. Because it seems yeah. it seems like the the sort of person who could really benefit is also the sort of person who, who would be extremely vulnerable. Uh, vulnerable and uncomfortable doing the due diligence that you're suggesting. So have a friend help you. Mm. Okay. Beautiful. So what are you, what are you working on now? I suppose you're, you're, you're sharing about this book. Do you have, uh, you know, the next project on the horizon or anything bubbling? Well, what's bubbling is I think, you know, I think part of what we need to learn as a culture, I said this at the beginning is how to hold these medicines. And I think that's the same question as how to hold, um, how to hold how we unfold in life. Because the, the medicines have traditionally been used not in a short period of time to reduce symptoms the way they're medicalized, mm. but they've mm. been held as part of life and part of growing and learning. And so I, I, and you talked about without medicines being a major part of it, but a significant part in, in that one ayahuasca ceremony, you've talked about unfolding transformations in your own life. And so I think I would like to write something about that lifelong process of unfolding. Hmm. Lovely. 
Well, and I, and I would like to, I'd like to interview you when you have. Oh, thank you, thank you. And I think our culture has to learn sort of how to be a student of life and to work with that process of unfolding. Hmm, I'm writing that down. Um, so where can people find you and your work on the web? Well, it's it's www.swimminginthesacred.com. Great. And if they send an email to me, it comes directly to my email. And I, I'm overwhelmed responding to everybody, but I do. Okay. Great. All right. So, so it's, I'll, I'll put it's that. The title of the book. Yeah. Swimminginthesacred.com. I'll put that in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you. So, Dr. Rachel Harris, thank you so much. This has been such a beautiful personal conversation. And uh, thank you for introducing me to these amazing souls. Oh, thank you, Hallie. Good luck with your work. <laughs> Thanks. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. And that's a wrap. You can find the show notes for today's episode at plantyourself.com slash 559. So what's going on? Um, I stopped doing garden news because I don't have a garden. And then a listener suggested that I could talk about uh, the inner garden of, of I guess, my, my mind or my soul. Uh, the inner garden right now is focused on getting residency um, and taking care of just day-to-day business and understanding that things move differently here, which is one of the appeals of this life change. And But that also means that things don't work as I'm used to. So yesterday I spent two hours um, trying to move, shift the electrical and water accounts for the apartment we're staying in into my name and so far have made zero progress uh, except possibly uh, on the spiritual level of accepting that this is how things are done here. Uh, Movement News been doing lots of sort of walk jogging and hiking this morning. I, I jogged around the uh, parts of the city I hadn't seen before and then came back down towards the beach did some qigong, and then decided to sort of run, jog, shuffle back on the sand, which is way tiring. So my my Steps app is woefully uh, unprepared to explain to me and to the world how hard it is to do 10 steps on sand versus 10 steps on asphalt or concrete. Um, Let's see what else is going on. Um, Getting used to... um, this idea of a small fridge, small freezer, small kitchen, small pantry, but everything is around you. It's like the world, um, you, you outsource your food to the world. It's a much more trusting way of being than the way I've lived in rural North Carolina, where everything was 20 minutes away. And you think, well, a tree falls, or there's a storm, or a flood, uh, or a human-made disaster, and you're stuck at home. And you better have a lot of food uh, supplies on hand, lots of water, kind of the emergency prepping. Um, sort of my life here is kind of the opposite of that, where the, the prepping is done communally and you trust that the things are going to be there uh, more or less uh, justly distributed when the time comes. And I don't know if that's true. I, I, my understanding of European culture is that it's much more collective than uh, the culture, at least in the places in the U.S. where I've lived. But uh, so slowly navigating and learning more and more Spanish every day. And Mia and I have started practicing a little bit together. 
Um, so hopefully that will bring on some fluency. That's about it for now. So uh, wishing you all the best, and I'll see you next time. Take care, my friends.